and they can't wait. Can you imagine what's going to happen when that power is unleashed on the Roman Empire? He doesn't tell a story about prayer. He doesn't tell a story about worship. See, see, Jesus has been on this journey, three years of pouring his life into so many people, of all the miracles, all the teachings, and it boils down to this one moment 15 miles away from the cross where he's going to give his life. only uh, 15 miles away and what he was feeling nobody else could ever understand he was 15 miles away but he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders this would be the last city that he would walk into and walk out of what was about to happen, he knew, and he, he had tried to explain it to the 12 closest to him, but they, they didn't fully get it. So as Jesus is walking into Jericho, Jerusalem is 15 miles away, and it's packed because the season is the Passover. So everyone is making the journey. Everyone is on their way. But not only is it packed because of Passover, it's packed because of Jesus. It's sort of his fault that the crowds are coming to see him because for three years, the way that he has taught, words so profound, they have the ability to change people's lives, but words so simple, even a child could understand. This is the man that would speak and storms would stop. This is the guy that walked on water. This is the one who would just reach out his hand and he could heal a leper. He raised people back to life. The Jewish people had been oppressed for so long, and finally, they have a superhero. They've been waiting for this person, and, and they see all of this power in three years, what he's able to do, the miracles that took place. Some of you, your favorite, water to wine. What he's been able to do, and they can't wait. Can you imagine what's going to happen when that power is unleashed on the Roman Empire? And they're thinking, man, when we get to Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is going to just fall on him. And it, it, it's, it's on. We'll be out from under the oppression of Rome. Everything's going to change. But they don't get it. So Jesus, as he's going into Jericho, the last city he'll walk into and out of, because he will walk into Jerusalem, but he will crawl out of Jerusalem with a cross on his back. And he knows everything that's about to happen in 15 miles. And as he's walking through the city, the crowd following him, there's a voice. It's someone way over there. He can't tell exactly who it is in that moment, but, but someone shouts out. And when they shout out, he stops. And when he stops, everybody stops. The cry of one person stops his movement draws his attention. Now, many were screaming out, but this person, this person shouts out, son of David, have mercy. I don't know if it was because they shouted out one of the prophetic names of Jesus, son of David, or if it was the request for mercy, because you only ask for mercy when you're desperate and you're losing hope. 
But for whatever reason, Jesus stops and says, bring, bring that man to me. And once again, he heals. A blind man who couldn't see now will have sight. And then as Jesus is on his journey, he stops at a tree. Zacchaeus has heard about Jesus. Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. He is a Jewish man who has betrayed all of his people. He now works for Rome, and as the chief tax collector, he has gotten rich off of robbing and taking advantage of his own people while working for Rome. He has betrayed his own people, and Jesus stops where Zacchaeus has climbed up in a tree because he's not a tall guy, and he just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus, so he's gone out on a limb to be able to see the Messiah. Jesus stops at that tree. And looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have lunch with you today. Maybe he said it because Zacchaeus would be one of the few people in that entire society that had the wealth, the ability, and the servants to pull off a great meal. But I don't think that's it. If you read the story, what becomes obvious is that Jesus actually wanted to hang out with Zacchaeus. Now you can imagine the crowd around him. This is our superhero, the one that's come to rescue us from Rome, and yet you're going to go have lunch and hang out with someone that's helping the Roman government? And in the midst of all of this, after three years of life-changing teaching, after three years of one miracle, one life changed after another, the crowds come just to see what's going to happen next. But now he's 15 miles away. And in between the three years of maximum life and maximum impact and the cross that he's about to go to, he pauses and he says, you just don't get it. I need to tell you a story. And Jesus stops the journey to Jerusalem in the town of Jericho to tell one more story. The Bible calls it a parable. In this series, Chronicles of the King, we're going to be looking at different parables that Jesus told. And the one this morning is unique because this is the only parable. A parable is a made-up story that communicates a universal principle and truth. But this one parable, it is unlike any of the other parables because this one, he actually ties to a historical event that happened about 20 years before. This one has some historical context. So as he begins to tell this story, the crowd begins to think, about 20 years ago, something kind of like this happened. Luke chapter 19, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Dr. Luke, he was a doctor, and so in the way that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write scriptures, he, he wrote the scriptures in a way that used his own mind and thinking. And Luke, because he was a doctor, was very curious and very analytical. He researches everything, and he tells us what happened. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10, 10 minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, a minus wasn't exactly a specific amount of money. It was actually a weight. It was about one and one quarter pounds. 
And so you could give a, a minus in the form of one and a quarter pounds of gold or one and a quarter pounds of diamonds or one and a quarter pounds of precious stones. And each of those one and a quarter pounds could be at different values. Some might be a, a salary for a few months. Some might be a salary for a few years, but it's one and a quarter pounds. Now think about this. The last story Jesus will ever tell. The last parable. There was something so troubling to him about what he was seeing that as he, as he thought about the three years of pouring his life into people and what he'd been teaching and what he'd been doing and how he'd been living, th those moments of absolute exhaustion when he continued to press through because of his love for people, the moments when he wanted to be alone but they wouldn't let him, and he just kept giving and giving and giving, and now he is 15 miles from the end of this phase. And he's so moved because of that, in between the three years and the cross, he says, I gotta tell you a story. 20 years before that, King Herod had died. King Herod had three sons, and one of them was an absolute joke. One of them was a train wreck of an individual. In fact, this guy was such a, a sloppy leader over the little things he was over. People died under his leadership. There were revolts under his leadership. He was a horrible person. Nobody would want him as a friend. Nobody would want to marry him. And certainly nobody would want him to be king. But King Herod took his three sons and he divided his kingdom up. And this area was going to get the sucky son. But Rome had to approve everything. So King Herod's son had to go to Rome and get Caesar's approval. But before he could get there, the Jewish people sent a delegation to Rome. And they said, listen, you don't know this guy. He's going to be horrible for us. He's not going to represent you well. Nobody likes him. Everybody hates him. He's a terrible individual. He's not going to do well for you. You don't want him to be king. But what, what does Rome care about the opinion of a few Jewish people? So he becomes king. So Jesus is tying this into something in history, but it's bigger. He's speaking from a context of something they would understand, but it's bigger. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. And so Jesus is using something from context, but then kind of adding to it. What is he communicating here? In between three years of ministry and 15 miles of this part's over, he's got one story to tell. What is he going to communicate? I think one of the things I see in these verses is everyone gets equal trust and equal opportunity. The king in the story that Jesus is telling is going away. So he calls some people to him and he gives each of them something to do something with. Everyone gets equal trust. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to trust each of you because the king represents him. I'm going to trust each of you to do something with what I'm going to give you. An equal opportunity. You have an opportunity to do something with what I'm giving you. And you might be here this morning and you might be thinking, well, if that's how Jesus thinks, he didn't do that for me. I've had to work for everything I've gotten. There was nothing given to me. You don't know how I grew up. You don't know what I've had to overcome. I didn't say equal gifts. I said equal trust and equal opportunity. He's beginning to paint a picture in the one story that he's going to tell. He doesn't tell a story about prayer. He doesn't tell a story about worship. He, he tells this story 
that's going to set the stage for the one thing that's going to matter. He goes on, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag. They each had different weights. According to his ability, then he went on the journey. See, everyone gets equal trust and opportunity, and there's an expectation to use what we've been given. Because he knows what's about to happen. He he is about to go to Jerusalem 15 miles away, die on a cross. He'll be resurrected three days later, and then he's going after a few days back to heaven. And he's going to hand everything that he has built in three years, everything that God has been doing from the beginning of time. He's going to hand it all to us. And so he's telling this story about what he expects from us. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Interesting perspective. Jesus says, I'm about to place something into your hand. And I'm going away, but I'm going to be coming back. We're going to have another conversation in the future. And I want to see what you've done with it. I want to see what you've gained. I think Jesus reveals something about his perspective about what he's handing to us. He did not say, when I get back, I want to see how bad you've messed it up. When I get back, you're going to prove to me again, once again, that you just can't handle it. When I get back, I'm going to have to say to you, why can't you be more like your brother? When I get back, you will have probably blown it. We'll see. He does not come from that perspective. Notice the wording used by Jesus. He's telling the story, but it's representing him, and he's sharing his perspective. I can't wait to see what you've done with what I'm going to give you. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second one said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir... Here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I didn't do anything. I didn't lose it. But I didn't take any chance. I didn't take any initiative. I didn't do anything with it. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. It's kind of the thinking of, you tell me God wants some things from my life, but he hasn't done anything for me. I've had to make my own way. You don't know what obstacles I've had to overcome. I put myself through school. I worked hard to get in this job. I'm a self-made person. I've done everything. And now something that God put nothing into, he he wants some of my time. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man. Some people view hard as someone who keeps their word and has expectations. Taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they replied, he already has 10. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, if this is the one story 
that Jesus interrupts the trip to Jerusalem. And it's weighing on his mind. It's weighing on him emotionally what he's about to have to deal with in 15 miles. And yet he is so moved to pause and tell a story. If this is the one story that he's going to tell after three years of ministry and before the cross, he's going to wedge it in right there. The the last story he's going to tell, then you owe it to yourself and I owe it to myself to uncover and discover what is he communicating. Because it's his last story. I think if you look at the text, it's not a financial message. It's deeper. It's bigger. I think what he's communicating is every single Christ follower is in ministry. Every single Christ follower is in ministry. He's saying, hey, what you've seen me do for three years as as I've built this movement to, to love God and to love people. Remember when he was asked, what's the big deal? He said, love God and love others. As I've built that and you've watched me and I've poured into you, I'm about to go to Jerusalem 15 miles and my life will end. And then very soon after the resurrection, I'm going to the Father. I'm leaving this whole thing with you. I'm leaving every bit of it in your hands. And I can't wait until I get back to see what you've done with it. Every Christ follower is in ministry. See, I I don't know who you are or what you do, but ministry is not a profession, it's a calling. And if you're a Christ follower, for a few moments, I want to talk specifically to those that are Christ followers. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, somebody invited you or you saw stuff on Facebook or you saw those, those car magnets or somehow you found out and you stopped by and you're walking through something, listen, For a few moments, you're going to get to listen in. You came on the perfect Sunday because you're going to get to listen in on the one thing that apparently is a big, big deal to Jesus. You you know what this is like, this story? This story is like the teacher saying, hey, 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 class, here's what's going to be on the final exam. This is the moment. What do you do when the teacher says, here's what's going to be on the final exam? You grab paper, you grab pencil, and you write it down. Or if you were like me and some of you, you say, does anybody have paper? Does anybody have pencil? Could you just write it down for me? This is the final exam. Here's the big deal. Because the Bible teaches if you're a follower of Christ, there's going to be a day where you and I stand before God. And in this story, Jesus says, here's here's what's going to matter. Here's the only thing that's going to matter for Christ followers. Every Christ follower is in ministry. You have been given some unique gifts by God that make up who you are. And some of you have a lot, and some of you have a few. And some of the gifts are large, and some of the gifts are what you would call small. But God gives away no small things, because in the economy of God, small things always have a big impact. You've been given some gifts, and the king has gone away. But he's coming back, and he's going to want to know what you've gained with it, what you've done with it. See, to follow Jesus is to follow his teachings, an example of loving the church and serving others. Loving the church and serving others. It's the one thing on the final exam. Peter, the apostle, tells us above all, above everything else, above everything in your life, above how busy you are, above how hectic your schedule is, above how much pressure you feel, above how tired you are, above how complicated your life is in this moment, above all, top priority, top shelf, 
This is the guy, he's talking about Jesus, when Jesus gave everything he had and was exhausted and kept going. I wonder, I wonder if scripture records those times when Jesus was so weary and so tired, but the people kept coming and Jesus kept ministering. I wonder if he did that for three years to show us there are days you're going to be tired. There are moments you're going to feel like you don't have another thing to give. There are going to be times that you are worn out, but you keep going and I will sustain you and I will help you and your life will make a big difference. See, every Christ follower is in ministry. Above all, love each other deeply. Now, it's interesting to me, he doesn't just say love each other. Because on the surface, love and love in our culture is I love you unless I don't. Love each other deeply. Deeply means I'm going to pour into you more than is comfortable for me. I'm going to care about you more than is convenient for me. I'm going to press in and give more. Some people might call me crazy, but I, I'm going to serve and love and help you in a way that, that is beyond. I'm going to love you deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And just, just a suggestion, some of you in your Bibles may want to circle that word grumbling. Offer hospitality, care, concern. Compassion, focus, love, but not surface love, love that is deep, without grumbling. You just, you, you don't know how busy I am. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what's going on in my life right now, and I just, I just need to take a break. I, I just need a break for me. I, I just, I'm in a season where I need God to do some things in my life, and I need you to step back. And he just kind of told me to rest. And so I need to take a little bit of a, a break. I'm not going to be serving for a while. I just I need to step away because there's stuff going on in my life. You know what's fascinating to me? Some of you, I see your social media. There's a whole lot of junk you haven't taken a break from. How is it that the kingdom of God and the one thing that Jesus says is going to be on the final exam, you think, oh, I can bow out of that so I can continue to do these other things that in 100 years aren't going to make a flipping difference to anybody? How is that? Because Jesus is saying in this moment, you, listen, I... This is not about what I want for C3. This is about what I want for you because we're going to be fine. God is using us. We are reaching people. You saw it just that. We're, we're going to be fine. This is not about C3. This is about you. What kind of pastor would I be if I didn't tell you what's coming on the final exam? How much would I love you if I avoided this topic? But some of you that are Christ followers, you're sitting on the bench on the sideline grumbling about your life and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like you just can't. And God is calling you to finally get in the game. And it's when you actually get involved that God will do some of that stuff that you've been wanting him to do. Notice, notice Peter continues. Peter continues. Each of you, not just people in professional ministry, not just people that have enough time, not just people that aren't too busy, not just people that don't have a lot of stuff going on in life, not just people that are de aren't dealing with any issues at work, not just people that aren't dealing with any issues with one of their children. Not, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Scripture says that as followers of Christ, we're to be salt and light. Have you ever heard that? We're to be salt and light. Matthew chapter 5, you are, not the pastors, not the student pastors, 
not, not the worship pastors, we are, but you, every single Christ follower, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, immediately the crowd that's listening in that day gets it because right here what we're talking about, King Herod built his palace up where he could look down onto the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is where the water would come and end. There was all incoming but no outgoing, and it was full of salt. This was the one place that you could go even if you couldn't swim because you would just float. It was so full of salt, and so what they would do, traders would come by this place, and they would grab all the salt they could because there was no refrigeration. They couldn't pack everything in ice to, to mail it, so the salt would actually preserve. The salt actually would keep things from rotting and decaying and going bad. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if you're a follower of mine, I'm putting this whole thing in your hands, and you're to be the salt because you're living in a broken, decaying, rotting world. There are people stuck in the stench of hopelessness all around you, and you're to be preserving their lives and preserving hope and keeping their life from getting broken and rotten. You're the preservative. And if you don't do that, of what value are you? Then he says, you're the light of the world. I, I try in my own life, anytime there's an example where Jesus uses more than one thing to illustrate it, it must be a really big deal to him because he's going even further. He's pressing even in. He didn't, he's not going to just talk about salt. He's going to talk about light. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And everybody around that knows exactly what he's talking about. Because if you're on a journey at night and you see the light on that hill and you know that's the city I'm going to, as you're getting there, what you know is not just how to get there. That light represents a place where you will find comfort, where there will be security, where there will be safety, where your needs will be taken care of, where you won't have to worry. It's going to be a place of rest. You can stop for the night. So the light is not just a destination where we come for an hour on Sunday. He's saying as a community of faith and a kind, you're to be the kind of people where when people interact with you, when people finally get to you, they find comfort and rest and security and safety and they are taken care of. He's saying, that's how I want you to function. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give it light to everyone in the house. Let it give light to everyone in the house. Nobody lights a candle and puts something over it so nobody can see it. But the challenge here is, are you doing that with your faith? In the same way, let your light not just your church is light, your light. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I need to ask you a question. If you're a Christ follower and you're part of C3, if you're a Christ follower and you're just visiting, maybe you just moved to Orlando, welcome. We're glad you're here. Or, or maybe you're kind of looking for a church home, you're a Christ follower and you're visiting C3. One of the main notes you want to take today, maybe you want to write it down on your phone is, C3 is the best church in the world. Just write that down. Because I can just tell you, I get a front row seat to the lives of a lot of these people. You are sitting among the greatest people on the planet. That's what makes C3 so amazing. But, but let me talk just for a minute to those of you that are Christ followers and part of C3. And, and I, have to, I have to ask you this question because you owe it to yourself to ask and answer this question. Here, here's the question. In light of Jesus' teaching, three years of ministry is over. He's just done one more healing, a blind man can see. He's hanging out with Zacchaeus for lunch and taking crap from a lot of religious people. He's about to go 15 miles and give his life because of how much he loves us. But he says, I gotta give you one story because there's a final exam coming and you need to be ready. 
This is what's going to matter. If everyone served and gave and invited like me, what kind of church would C3 be? If everyone served, I wish I could tell you, and I can't because of confidentiality, I wish I could tell you some of the stories of some of the people who serve. I can promise you there's no one who serves in the life of C3 that does it because they, they contacted our office and said, Pastor, I'm bored in life. I have nothing to do. And I've got all the money in the world in the bank. I don't have any problems. And, and could you fill my time? Could you please find something for me to do? Because I have nothing to do. I've, I've run out of things to do. There's nobody that serves at C3 that has that story. But I can tell you, I could tell you some stories, but I can't because of confidentiality of people who serve, and it would blow your flipping mind with what they're going through. If you know Jesus and he died on a cross for you and you're not serving, you have no excuse. And if everyone served and gave and invited like me, what kind of church would C3 be? So maybe you, you, you heard that passage in Luke and you're thinking, okay, that parable, that chronicle of a king, I, I, I wasn't aware of all the context, man, good story, but what, what is that? What does that mean for me? I don't know. I just teach this stuff. I'm kidding. <laughs> the best way to answer that, the best way to answer that, let, let's just imagine for a moment, if you're thinking, okay, how, how do I know how I'm doing? I mean, if, if the big deal is the final exam when I get to heaven and one ultimate thing is going to matter for Christ followers, how, how do I know how I'm doing with that? We would grab coffee and sit down together, and just me and you are going to talk. Nobody else, nobody's recording this. We're not in a room full of people. It's just you and me talking. And if, if we go to Credo Coffee Shop, I'm going to grab the Cafe Con Leche. If we go to Drunken Monkey, I'm going to grab the Tantric Mayan. If we go to Starbucks, I'm getting water because I'm tired of burnt coffee. But <laughs> I've just gotten to that place. Got it this morning and thought, why do I, why do I, I mean, my dad said, son, do you know how much you pay for coffee? I can fix Folgers for 45 cents. I, I don't <laughs> And I'm starting to agree with him. Maybe that's just the gray and the bald and getting old. But, but if we were to sit down, we're sitting down. You picked the coffee shop. Maybe we're having smoothies or we're drinking wheatgrass or whatever that garbage is. We're, but we're going to have a good conversation. We're just sitting down. Nobody else is listening, just you and me. I would say if you want to know how you're doing and getting ready for the final exam, ask yourself some questions that I ask myself. One of the questions I ask is, am I making God look good every day? Are you making God look good every day? I'm not asking you for making you look good. There are a lot of good people that have good marriages and good kids and good careers that aren't making a difference in this world at all. They're just good. Are you making God look good in how you interact with people? Do people walk away saying, man, he's a great guy, she's a great lady? Or do they walk away saying, man, that guy's God, that lady's God is a great God? And I'm not talking about in some obnoxious, religious, wackadoodle kind of way. There are plenty of those. I'm not talking about bullhorn on the street corner. Cut that out. That doesn't help anybody. You've all met, you've met obnoxious religious people, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of life that is so authentically lived for others and caring about others, it causes people to step back and say, man, there, there must be something beyond you in you. You must have an amazing God. Only three questions, that's the first. Next question, 
Would I be doing things differently if it were up to me? Have you ever asked yourself that? Would I be doing things differently if it were up to me? What do I mean by that? There's some things that I do and have done over the years. There's some things that Angie and I do and have done over the years that if it were up to me, we wouldn't do. And, and since we're just sitting down and we're having coffee together and nobody else is listening, it's just you and me, I'll go ahead and tell you because it's not being recorded. I'll just tell you this is a private conversation between you and me, just the, just the two of us. I'll tell you what would I be doing differently if it were up to me as I look back over the years. We, we exceeded tithe years ago. The thousands and thousands of dollars that we've given to C3, if, if it were up to me, I wouldn't have done that. Now, you might be tempted to think, are you bragging? No, it's called leading. You can't ask people to do what you don't do. But, but if it were up to me, if it were up to me, I wouldn't do that. I would have a pontoon boat and a lake house. Now, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a pontoon boat pontoon boat and a lake house. If you have that, we ought to be best friends. But, but I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that unless that's what you're investing in. And as a follower of Jesus, you're not following the teachings of Jesus. Is there anything in your life that looks different because you do it God's way instead of your way? If it were up to me, I would be more selfish you know, we all battle with selfishness, but I would be even more selfish. If it were up to me and not God, I might look at some things and watch some things that I don't. If it were up to me and not God, my bride would not like or love me and would not still be married to me. Because if it were up to me and not God, everything in my world would be about me. What we eat, where we go, where we go to dinner, where we go on vacation, everything about my life would be about me. So one of the evidences in my life, one of the things I look at and I say, man, God, I'm, I'm so grateful because it, it, while there's still a lot of work that God needs to do in me and a lot of growing that God needs to do in me, there are some definitive areas that I can look at and I think, okay, God, right there, I wouldn't do it that way. That's all you. That's me putting you first in that area, and that's me. Would I be doing things differently if it were up to me? And if you look at your life and you think, no, I'd, I'd do it pretty much like I'm doing it, then there's nothing in your life that you're doing that's up to God. Third question. We're just having coffee, talking, so we can be real honest with each other. What would those closest to me say my ministry is? If you want to know how you're doing and getting ready for this final exam, because there's a day that you're going to stand before God, what, what would those closest to me say my ministry is? The two or three people closest to you, as they look at your life, it's got to be evident. What's your ministry? What is it? If you look in the rearview mirror of life, you can tell. As you look in the rearview mirror of life and you look back over the five, last five years, who's the one person, the one person that you loved and cared about beyond yourself that you helped them come to faith in Christ and find a relationship in Christ? Who's that one person in the last five years, in the last two years, in the last year? Who's the one person that because you're in their life, they may not be a Christ follower yet, but they're a step closer. They may not have a personal relationship with God yet, but they're a step closer who is it that God is using you in their life? Because, see, you may not like where you work, but it's still your ministry while you're there. 
Because you may be the only Jesus some people see. There are people that live on your street. There are people that shop where you shop. They live on my street. They shop where I shop. There are people we interact with on a regular basis. So out of all of them, who's your ministry? What's your ministry? Who is it that their life will be eternally better just because you're in it? Now, because there's a final exam coming, I want to give you a practice test. And this one doesn't count. doesn't even affect your GPA. This is a practice test to get ready for the final exam. Here it is. This is the practice test. I want you to take it right now or this afternoon. My ministry is blank. Now, there's no next screen because I don't know what that is. You know. But since we're just having coffee, sitting down, just the two of us, I feel bold enough because I care about you enough. See, love will motivate you to say things to people that they need to hear, not that they want to hear. If you can't write it down, you don't have it. My ministry is. See, see, Jesus has been on this journey three years of pouring his life into so many people of all the miracles, all the teachings, and it boils down to this one moment 15 miles away from the cross where he's going to give his life. And he says, i got to tell you this story because I'm about to put everything in your hands. So what are you doing with it? How are you serving people out there, and how are you serving people in here? How much of what you do every single week will matter in 100 years? And some of you are incredibly, all of you are gifted in some way. Some of you have the gift. You you know how to connect with people one-on-one. Speaking in front of a bunch of people terrifies you. Me too. I get it. I get it. But, but one-on-one, man, that's your sweet spot. And when you talk to people, they feel encouraged. They feel loved. And, and one life at a time, you can build not your kingdom but the kingdom of God. Some of you have a connecting smile, and you can stand at a door and smile as people are walking in, and they feel welcome just by your presence. And when they're rolling through their week and week after week, and they may not tell you because they're busy and they've got to check their kids in and pick their kids up. They may not tell you, but just seeing you at that door and your demeanor and how you smile and care for people, you're making a difference in their lives, and that, that you're part of what keeps them coming back. Some of you serve in C3 Kids, and, and, you, and you give of yourself week after week. And it's one of the most thankless roles, especially the younger the child. I mean, how many Bible verses can you teach a three-month-old? But how many diapers do you change every week? We had all four grandkids this week at a place while we were at student camp, and I went over at night and spoke, and the kids were with us. The little bitty ones, they, they roll through a lot of diapers. But there's somebody that because you serve, they can drop their kids off. And as they get older, they know they're going to be taught about Jesus on their level. And as as they come into this room, they know their kids are safe and secure so they can pay attention without distraction. For some parents, it's the one moment they have each week to engage like that. There's some people, I've heard from them, I get emails or I have conversations. The only time anyone smiles at them is on a Sunday morning. You have no idea. So... What's your ministry? If you're a follower of Jesus and you're a part of C3, you need to be serving, not because I need you to, not because C3 needs you to, 
But because you owe it to yourself, you need to for you, and it's the final exam. You won't be able to stand before God one day and say, huh, I didn't know I studied the wrong stuff. He'll remind you of this moment. You're responsible for what you know. You need to serve. Now, here's the most incredible thing about the whole thing, the most incredible thing. Jesus chooses to tell this story. He picks the story he's going to tell, this parable, the, the chronicle of a king. And as he's telling this story, he shares an insight into how he thinks. When he says, I'm handing the whole thing to you, but I'm going to come back and, and, and I'm going to see what you've gained. He doesn't say, I'm going to see what you've lost. I'm going to see what you've gained. He's saying, I'm putting it all in your hands. And you know what? I believe in you. I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. Often in churches, we talk about our need to believe in God and how to believe in God. But, but do you understand we serve a God who believes in you? Do you understand that? He's left everything up to us. There is no plan B. There is no second strategy. He says, hey, I'm going to give you this. I know you can do it. I'm counting on you. I'm banking on you. In fact, I believe in you more than you believe in me. Just take a step of faith. So if you're a part of C3 and you're a Christ follower, you owe it to yourself to serve, to get off the bench and get into the game. I'm going to ask you to grab your cell phone if you're willing to serve and just text serve with C3, no spaces, serve with C3 to 313131. Serve with C3, 313131. This week, one of our pastors, somebody on our leadership team, will contact you and say, hey, here are the opportunities. They'll talk about your schedule. They'll talk about what your interests are, and we will get you in the game. Because I don't want you to take your last breath. And other than your family, nobody miss you. I want your life to mean more. How would the kingdom of God feel your absence? How would the church feel your absence? Because if you were to vanish, someone that you've been pouring your life into, they, they would feel that loss at a unique level. You were created for more, some of you, than how you're living. And you've let a lot of things get in the way of the very thing that's ultimately going to matter. So shoot the text. Lean into faith. Stop rationalizing. Serve with C3, no spaces, to 313131. And I can't wait to get you plugged in. Welcome to the team. And I can't wait to see how God uses you and what God's going to do through you to continue to love people and bring people hope. I can't wait. He believes in you. I believe in you. It's going to be awesome. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how you love us. Thank you for letting us just, just play a small part in what you're doing in people's lives. I pray for every man and woman and young person that's a part of C3 that this morning, there would be no more hesitation, there would be no other things more important, that ultimately we would begin to inform our own lives and take ownership of our own lives in the sense of recognizing and implementing the one thing that's really going to matter 100 years from now. I pray your blessings on those who are going to step into serving. God, I pray you'd bless them and bless others through them. In Jesus' name, amen. 